The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Ahoy, mateys. This week on Civil War Talk Radio, it's the Civil War at Sea. Our guest is the author or editor of numerous books on the subject. He's the chief historian of the USS Monitor Center at Norfolk's Mariner's Museum. He's professor of history emeritus at the United States Naval Academy, and most recently, the author of Lincoln and His Admirals from Oxford University Press. We'll be back in a few moments on Civil War Talk Radio with Craig L. Simons. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Haiti has been hit hard by a deadly earthquake. Destruction is everywhere. Tens of thousands are feared dead and hundreds of thousands are homeless without food, water, and basic necessities. Save the Children is on the scene, but your support is urgently needed to help us save lives. Please give as much as you can now. Call 1-800-SAVE-THE-CHILDREN or go online at savethechildren.org. You can even donate $10 right now by texting the word SAVE from your cell phone to 20222. Please give now. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you this week from the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University. Not Eastern Carolina University, not East Carolina State University, or any other fictional place, but the real one, East Carolina University, from the mythical 51st state of East Carolina. And yet not speaking for the university, but just for myself uh, here in Greenville, North Carolina. And the same will be true for our guest. He'll speak only for himself. I'll start today with an apology for the quality of my voice. I've got a cold that is uh, unpleasant sounding, but not not too uncomfortable. So uh, I I hope uh, listening will not be any more painful than it is for me to speak, which is not too bad. It actually adds a a sort of gravitas to my presentation with the the deep, uh, hoarse voice brought on by this mild illness, which in turn was brought on, I think, by the uh, stresses and travels of the last several weeks. We have had no live shows of Civil War Talk Radio for several weeks. Last week it was because uh, I was on the road traveling, uh, giving presentations to the Ann Arbor Civil War Roundtable in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and the Chesapeake Civil War Roundtable uh, just outside of Annapolis, uh, the stomping grounds of today's guest, who will be with us in a few minutes. The uh, 
uh, it was a great pleasure to visit both of those groups, especially uh, Ann Arbor, my old uh, my alma mater uh, for undergraduate in law school. It was uh, great to be back there to see some old friends, uh, uh, former guests on the show like Tom Nansig, and to uh, uh, meet a lot of people who listen to the show and, and get their feedback and ideas. And uh, that was certainly pleasant as well. It's always fun to talk uh, Civil War in Lincoln with uh, guests, uh, with with friends anywhere, and likewise it was it was great to make new friends in the Baltimore area, talking with the Chesapeake Civil War Roundtable, a very interesting group there. I have had to uh, cancel my presentation on June 11th with the Abraham Lincoln Roundtable in Detroit, Michigan, due to my older daughter's high school graduation conflicting with that. Um, but I was happy to learn that Frank Williams will be filling in uh, there. Uh, I'm delighted on behalf of the uh, the Abraham Lincoln Roundtable that they'll have such a, uh, a fine speaker. And even more delighted, I can tease Frank that he is my substitute because uh, many of you may remember Frank Williams being on the show uh, several years ago. He is a, a great Lincoln uh, speaker, uh, always entertaining and, and uh uh, authoritative and, and just fun to talk to. So I know they'll have a good show and it'll be fun for me to tease them about that. We will be doing live shows for the next several weeks. Coming up next week, uh, Charlie Knight, author of Valley Thunder, will be talking about the Battle of New Market. Uh, on June 4th, we'll have Dave Powell, uh, who has put together a spectacular book on maps of Chickamauga. Uh, you will not want to miss that. On June 11th, we'll have Professor Tom Clemens uh, of the Save Historic Antietam Foundation, uh, who's edited a new account, uh, an old account by Ezra Carman's 1862 campaign. So you won't want to miss that either. Uh, a couple more housekeeping notices. Uh, in the interests of uh, moving things around here on campus, uh, I'm moving books from one office to another. I have been recently named chair of the history department, uh, no longer acting or interim or otherwise uh, hypothecated. I'm now the, the official chair, and I can drop the mask of collegiality and begin to exercise the uh, petty tyrancy that I've always yearned for. Uh, but that also means I, I'm moving some of my things from one office to another. And I'd like to move out the uh, spare copies of All for the Regiment, and did Lincoln own slaves? If anyone is interested in getting one for a, uh, we could call it a donation, you're really just buying a book. If you want to send $15 to the show, Civil War Talk Radio, using PayPal to civilwartr at aol.com, uh, for $15 you can get a hardbound copy of All for the Regiment, The Army of the Ohio, 1861. Uh, to 62, or did Lincoln own slaves and other frequently asked questions about Abraham Lincoln, uh, also the hardbound first edition. If you want them both, $25 will get you both books, and that's postpaid. Don't have to worry about postage anywhere in the United States. If it's outside of our postal service, I'll have to figure out what it would cost to send it, but I'd be happy to uh, send those off to you, sign them, uh, $15 for a hardbound book, not a bad deal. Last news item before we get to our guest, and perhaps the most important of all sports fans the world over, wait every year for the Beast of the East Youth Soccer Tournament here in Greenville. 
which this year, instead of being in February before the spring season, was postponed due to weather and didn't take place until last weekend. And the Greenville Stars, my daughter's 14 and under soccer team uh, that I uh, have the pleasure of coaching, competed against teams from Jacksonville and Roanoke Rapids and Wake Forest. And I'm delighted to say that in a titanic struggle, uh, a one-to-one tie in the championship game that went to overtime, our girls fought the uh, elite, uh, certainly noisier uh, team from Wake Forest uh, through two scoreless overtimes and on into penalty kicks. On beyond the five penalty kicks, it went, uh, I think, eight players deep before we finally came up with a winner. And it was the Greenville Stars who thus register a two-to-one victory in their final tournament for the season, perhaps their final tournament ever as some of them age up and move on to other things. So I know everyone was waiting for that, and now you know the Greenville Stars win their last tournament of the year. Well, enough on these many topics. It's time to talk Civil War. And uh, we'll get a quick introduction and be taking a break fairly soon. But I'd like to get started with our guest, Craig Simons. Uh, Craig, are you there? Here. Hello, Jerry. And I want to say to all of your readers that getting all for the regiment and did Lincoln own slaves both in hardback for $25 as a bargain, and they should immediately take advantage of that. That's why you're on the show, Craig. I, I wonder if I said that right. <laughs> you got that just right. Excellent. Well, I'm I'm going to be <clears throat> plugging your book. Uh, did not did Lincoln own slaves? That's mine. Um, Lincoln <laughs> and his admirals, which we're going to talk about today. Um, it is an excellent book, and, and we'll talk a lot about it. Um, but that's not your only book. Uh, the last time you were on the show, you had uh, it was before you retired from the Naval Academy. But since then, you produced. Uh, Lincoln and his Admirals, uh, Civil War at Sea. You've got a edited volume here on combined operations in the Civil War. Uh, d- d- what is retirement like? Well, that's one of the reasons I wanted to take advantage of retirement is that I really wanted to spend more time writing. And, and it's been a ball. You're in command of your own schedule. You get up and go straight to the computer, and you work when when the muse strikes, and it makes all the difference in the world. So uh, some of these things are things I've been thinking about for a while, but uh, Having the time and the opportunity to put them together is is a great privilege. Well, obviously you've done a lot with that. You're also uh, connected with the Mariners Museum and the USS Monitor Center. Well, I was. I'm still on the board of advisors, but for two years after retirement, I was much more active when we were getting that uh, set up. And anybody who's been there can see, I think, that it has become an absolutely splendid visit. Uh, the Monitor Center attached to the already excellent uh, Mariner's Museum is a, is worth a visit by itself. I'm I'm no longer actively involved with them as an advisor, but I still sit on the board and and encourage people to take advantage of that great opportunity to visit that place. Well, that that is uh, it, it absolutely is a wonderful place to visit, and listeners don't want to miss that. Now, uh, before we talk about the Lincoln book, you have another book that came out a little while back on. Uh, I'm going by memory. The the, the battles at sea. What was the title? Um, the, the five uh, yeah, decisive battles. See, was the title, and, and what I did there. Uh, that's. At, have we got time before the break for me to explain how the genesis I, of that particular project? I, let's do that. Because the, the break will wait for us. It, it came to me out of the blue, uh, and and it's kind of an interesting story. So uh, I I need uh, three to five minutes to to kind of explain how that came about. Well, I know our engineer's listening, and he'll he'll calmly wait for for us to go through this. Uh, go ahead. 
All right. Well, I was at my desk at the Naval Academy, and the phone rang, and it was a, a mutual friend, Paul Stilwell, who for many years ran uh, the oral history project at the U.S. Naval Institute, a great project in which he sat down with elderly veterans of America's wars and asked them to remember things, memories that would have been lost but for his effort and the effort of the Naval Institute. And, and he said to me he was just down having an interview with Tom Buell. Uh, Tom Buell is a, was a great historian, a biographer of uh, Spruance and King and others. And uh, he had recently signed a contract with Oxford University Press to write a book on the changing nature of naval command. He was himself a retired naval officer and had, in fact, had command of a ship at sea and knew what he was talking about, but knew also that it changed dramatically from era to era. And he wanted to write a book that showed how that transformation took place from the age of sail to the age of steam to modern warfare. And no sooner had he signed that contract than a visit to his doctor um, left him with the stunning news that he had leukemia and was not going to live to f complete that project. And called me and asked me if I would do it. Well, but there's a question you cannot refuse. Man, no um, way. And obviously, I, I, well, of course, Tom, I'd, I'd, I'd be honored to take that on. So it began that way. It ended up, instead of being three battles, being five battles. But I tried to stay faithful to Tom's initial idea that each battle, written in some detail, and it's pretty much operational, it's who was involved and how they fought and what it felt like, but it's also an exposition of the technology that was involved and the relationship between technology and the person and, and the personality and how warfare changed from the age of sail uh, up through the, the most recent battle that I did was a confrontation in the Persian Gulf in 1988 called Operation Praying Mantis in which uh, the United States Navy virtually sunk the Iranian Navy. Uh, it was, very few people know this, uh, the largest surface naval engagement in history since World War II, and uh, was the debut of a lot of modern weapon systems, you know, the satellite-guided missile systems and so forth. So to show that transition, how naval commanders and decision-makers from the age of sail up to the age of electronic warfare nevertheless faced some of the same command responsibilities, but in entirely different venues, was a very exciting project for me. So I'm, I'm really pleased with the way that turned out. Well, that, that is... Uh, uh... It, 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 it's a book that I admit I have not read yet. I've been putting it on my shelf for summer vacation reading. I like to read nautical things by the coast. And that's, that's a very good idea. Very it, good. It's one I've been looking forward to for the past year. I've, I've had it on the, 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 the stack I keep of books for next summer, and uh, this makes it's going to be harder still to resist it until that time. <laughs> um, but I'll find a way to do that. Um, what we'll do, since, since we got a little bit of a late start, we'll take our, a break now uh, and come back in a few minutes, uh, talk some more with Craig Simons about Lincoln and his admirals on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. In 1952, T. Harry Williams wrote Lincoln and His Generals, one of the classic works of Civil War historiography. Now Craig L. Simons has written Lincoln and His Admirals. How does it stack up? We'll find out when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Listen. Listen. 
The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Are you ready to go green? You've asked, and we've heard you. Introducing the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit thegreentalknetwork.com and tune in to help spread the green. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking this week with Craig L. Simons, author of Lincoln and His Admirals, among many other books. In our first segment, we talked a little bit about a previous book, Decision at Sea, that looks at uh, the way naval technology has changed over time, as well as naval command and control and other issues. Um, And, Craig, you mentioned uh, being involved with oral history. We had a student here at East Carolina uh, contact us uh, earlier this spring to say her grandfather or great-grandfather is having a reunion with his shipmates from a destroyer escort from uh, the Second World War and uh, has arranged, we've arranged to have uh, become a class project for an oral history class here to interview those uh, shipmates at their reunion and try and get those memories uh, uh, transcribed for uh, before they uh, leave us as so many others have done. Yeah, I think that's a very important project for anybody listening who has an elderly grandfather or great uncle who served in World War II. Those men and, and some women who served in that war um, have often been reluctant to talk about their experiences, and I have found that uh, their descendants were often surprised in hearing, listening to an oral history of their ancestor and, and the many uh, adventures and, and some very tragic events that they uh, underwent in that experience, and we're going to lose that generation. And I think it's important, as much as we possibly can, to get that great story told and on paper, so that future historians can take advantage of it. And I'm glad you're doing that. You know, it's, it's a great opportunity for our students. We're very excited that, uh, that I've talked to some of them. They're very excited about it, and, and it should be. Uh, uh, you know, hopefully, we'll come up with something perhaps publishable out of it. The um, now the book. Uh, the most recent book uh, that I'm looking at here, not not your most recent, but but the one that I want to talk about today, Lincoln and His Admirals. Um, as I said in the break, uh, the title immediately makes everyone think of Lincoln and His Generals, the, the great T. Harry Williams book from from 1952. Uh, was that the model that you you had in mind uh, when you chose that title? Well, it was to a certain book? extent. I, I, I in fact, uh, give an homage to T. Harry in uh, the introduction to that book because T. Harry, of course, wrote in that this was an examination of Lincoln as commander-in-chief. Uh, and, and in a way, it was that, because the Civil War was primarily and predominantly, we really need to say this, a land war. Uh, and I do acknowledge that in the book. And Lincoln obviously had to spend a great deal more time concerned with his generals and with the war on land. It had a greater effect on the political circumstances, on international circumstances, than did the war at sea. But the war at sea did matter, and he did get involved with it uh, in ways I'm sure were completely unexpected to him. Uh, it's important to recall in thinking about Lincoln's 
presence at the nexus of this decision-making architecture that there was no such thing as, of course, the uh, combined chiefs, general, uh, joint chiefs of staff or the Department of Defense, where there was an architecture for decisions to be passed from one service to another. If the Army and the Navy were going to cooperate on the western rivers or along the coast, the only person, according to the Constitution, who had simultaneous command over both services was the president. So that whenever that happened, Lincoln got drawn in uh, to the decision-making process, I think in a much more intimate way than he had ever anticipated or certainly than he desired. So to that extent, it, it, there's, there's the political relationship, which is clearly evident in Lincoln's relationship with his generals. There's some of that on the admiral's side as well. But there's also simply the fact that the absence of a joint commander for all of these undertakings, Vicksburg being one of the most famous, uh, where the Army and the Navy were both involved in an operation, Lincoln found himself necessarily drawn in as a decision-maker in those activities. So, so that's another factor that, that is less evident in T. Harry Williams' work that is evident in this one. Well, I mean, when you think of it, Lincoln had enough trouble coordinating his generals, uh, trying to get you know, Pope and McClellan uh, to work together, or, or Halleck and Buell out west uh, at the same time. And they theoretically are under a common uh, authority as, as generals. But with, with the naval officers, literally, they, they, they were like two separate worlds. You present them as almost these two, these two independent organizations that don't have to do anything more than voluntarily cooperate if they want to. Well, I think that's accurate. I think it's useful to think of them as allies on the same side, but not necessarily in the same service. And because the 19th century uh, officer was necessarily very touchy about his honor, uh, the idea that he would subsume his command uh, responsibilities under an officer from another service was absolutely unacceptable. Lincoln directly went to Lewis Goldsboro, for example, when he was down in Hampton Roads in the spring of 1862 and said, Admiral, for the sake of the cause, would you be willing to subject yourself to the orders of General McClellan? And I don't think it's, it was because it was General McClellan. I think it was because it was a general, any general. Uh, the Goldsboro said, absolutely not. That would be, uh, I would never consider such a thing. It's impossible even to imagine it. Wow. Now, one of the things that is interesting is in the span of the next two years, from 1862 to 1864, some of those barriers were broken down. By the time Grant was commander of all the armies, and he gave orders, and he did give orders to naval officers, those naval officers began to obey those orders. So just in that 48-month time span, there's a, 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 I hate to use this phrase, a paradigm shift in which the separateness of the services it becomes less clear. The line between them is blurred, and I think Lincoln should get a lot of the credit for that. Hmm. Now, when you were writing this book, um, and, and I'm, I'm looking at uh, uh, Spill the Means, I wrote a review of it for the uh, journal of the Abraham Lincoln Association that will be uh, appearing in the next issue for listeners who are members of the Abraham Lincoln Association, and if you're not, uh, why you should be. Um, the uh, uh, And one of the things that I, I note in that is that it, it's really astonishing with the number of books on Abraham Lincoln that nobody had written about Lincoln as, as a Navy man, basically, uh, out of all the books on the shelf. And here you've made your career writing both about uh, naval history, Civil War history, and Abraham Lincoln. And, and that, that at the combination of those three, there's no book. Uh, and that's astonishing. I agree. Uh, you know, people have 
compiled bibliographies of books about Lincoln. Uh, one authority claims to have identified 16,000 books in English on Abraham Lincoln, not a one dealing with Lincoln's relationship with the Navy. Um, and as you say, as someone who, teaching at the Naval Academy, taught both the history of the American Navy and the history of the Civil War, this is where those two threads cross. And it, to me, it seemed uh, a logical topic and one that was begging uh, to be eliminated, and I'm just glad it waited for me. Uh, I had a lot of a lot of fun doing it. And I, I would think so. Now there are, there are some places. Well, I mean, let's approach it chronologically. Uh, Lincoln does get involved with the Navy right from the very start of the war, with the uh, the relief expeditions uh, to Fort Sumter and Fort Pickens. Uh, that doesn't go so well. Uh, no, and I, and one of the points I wanted to make in this book is that there is a clearly perceptible uh, uh, change in the way Lincoln uh, exercises authority over the services. I mean, I, we talk about Lincoln's necessary growth from born in a log cabin, taught himself to read, pulled himself up by his bootstraps, pick whichever cliche you want, the common man makes good, and then all of a sudden he becomes president, and we somehow assume he was the brilliant political genius from the first day he was in office. And I think it's pretty clear, especially in his relationship with the Navy, that that trajectory continues on an upward track, because early on he's just finding his way and, and, and making kind of a muddle of it. He, has, you know, he, he writes orders that won't work. He writes orders that conflict with one another. He sends a ship to two places at the same time. And pretty clearly, he doesn't have his act together yet in the Fort Sumter crisis. Now, of course, that's understandable. Uh, he's dealing with an entirely unprecedented national crisis. Uh, but I think you can also compare that with the way he handles crises in 1864. And once again, you see he has become the deft manager of military activities. But you're right. During the Fort Sumter crisis, he was kind of making it up as he went along and not always making the right choices. Well, some of it, it seems to me, was that he didn't fully respect the chain of command when he first took office. And you see him doing this with Elmer Ellsworth. He wanted to make him minister of militia or some, some sort of made-up position right? Uh, and just put his people in and sort of work with them directly. And likewise, uh, with the Navy, instead of going through channels, he was giving orders directly uh, that, that caused a lot of confusion. That's true, but I think uh, there are two excuses for that. One is that, as I mentioned earlier, it is absolutely unprecedented. Lincoln sitting in his office, the Secretary of State comes in. Now, the Secretary of State, William Seward, he's the one who's supposed to have particular understanding and cognizance of foreign policy and diplomatic relations, and in a way that involves the Navy and America's relationships with countries overseas. And, and, and uh, Seward comes into the office and brings with him a naval officer, and an army officer, this is Montgomery Meigs and David Dixon Porter, and kind of harangues the president a little bit about the importance of resupplying Fort Pickens off the coast of Florida. It's absolutely essential that we do this. And here are these two experts who know how to do it. And, and here's a plan that shows us that we can do it. And Lincoln, well, yes, it is a crisis. We need to act swiftly. And here are these experts telling me that it can be done and how it can be done. Go ahead and write the orders and I'll sign them. Now, you're right, that's, that's violating the chain of command, but, of course, what is the chain of command in the United States Navy in 1861? The highest rank available is captain. There are no admirals, there are no commodores, except the senior captain who happens to be operating with a squadron. Uh, seniority is simply by date of rank. 
so there's nobody who has particular organizational control. There's no chief of naval operations. So Lincoln uh, has to kind of do it himself. Well, of course, what turns out, as he discovers later, when Gideon Wells, the Secretary of the Navy, sees what he's done, he comes striding over to the White House, bursts in on the president, which I guess you could do in those days, and <laughs> says, what have you done? Or actually, Lincoln sees him coming and says, what have I done? <laughs> and uh, Gideon Wells shows him and tells him. So I think that is part of the learning curve. Uh, the fact that there really wasn't a, a chain of command or a structural organization that Lincoln could depend on. I mean, he went to Winfield Scott because Scott was the oldest and most senior and most respected military voice in the country. And Scott's advice was, well, there's nothing that can be done. It's, it's hopeless. So Lincoln was, was muddling through. And it's interesting you mentioned uh, that there's no rank higher than captain at the beginning of the war. Talk about a, a flat uh, table of organization. Uh, right, that's uh, true. And it's kind of an interesting story. You know, there were militia generals because the notion was that the army was somehow came of the people. The militia was of the people. So if you had generals, they represented the people's will. But in the American mind of the 19th century, navies were instruments of empire. Navies were uh, the, the Navy in the English Civil War, for example, in the 17th century, had sided with the king, which is why to this very day it's called the Royal Navy. It's the British Army, by the way, but the Royal mm -hmm. Navy. And therefore the perception was that navies are suspect in democracies. So if we re create admirals, this is a threat to the democratic republic that we revere. So no one advanced beyond the rank of captain. Now, of course, the cap the Navy captain's equivalent in the Army was an Army colonel. So in 1861, all these jumped-up brigadiers who six months before had been the mayor of a small town started giving orders to Navy captains who had 40 years of active service, and, and the Navy just wouldn't stand for it anymore, and hence we got the creation of the rank of admiral. So they're the first ones in American history during the Civil War. Well, now, you mentioned uh, there is, of course, the Secretary of the Navy uh, in terms of authority, but that's a right. civilian position. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, Gideon Wells and how, how he and Lincoln worked together? Yeah, Gideon Wells is a great character, uh, and he left us a great piece of evidence about him. His three-volume diary that Howard Beale edited back in the 1960s is a great read. I mean, you wouldn't think necessarily that a diary would be a bedtime reading, but <laughs> Gideon Wells is kind of a hoot, and boy, he calls a spade a spade, and he does not like William Seward, and says so in his diary, and if he thinks a guy's a crook, he calls him a crook in no uncertain terms. So there's a great entree into his mind. <clears throat> he was also a, something of an eccentric, personally. That willingness to say exactly what he thought at the moment he thought it uh, got, made him less than a suave political character. Uh, so he had enemies. And uh, some of the, the descriptions of Wells at the time and historically are uh, somewhat derogatory. Uh, but I think Wells, uh, I think Lincoln particularly appreciated Wells. He appreciated that candor. He knew that Wells would say exactly what he thought, good or bad. Uh, he knew that Wells was honest. Uh, he knew that he could count on Wells to do a dirty job when a dirty job had to be done. And keep in mind that Wells and Seward are the only two cabinet ministers appointed from the beginning who stay with Lincoln through his entire administration and, in fact, into the Johnson administration. The others are rotated here and there, but those two are there at the beginning and there at the end. And I think that Gideon Wells is, uh, is an underappreciated character uh, in the Civil War to a certain extent. 
Well, his, his, I, I concur about his diary. It is a, a fabulous piece of reading, and I always picture him, you know, adjusting his wig. He was always trying to get his that's, hair that's out of his true. head. He was bald as an egg, but and bought a wig when he was uh, in his middle forties. And he bought a nice, rich, brown wig, which I guess was the color of his original hair, and was too cheap to buy a replacement. And his beard turned to snow white, so he had this brown wig and a white beard. It was absolutely clash. It fooled no one whatsoever. And absent-minded as he was, he would put his hand in his wig and kind of move it around on his head. You know, if he was thinking, he'd shove it back onto the back of his head. Or I imagine if he sneezed, it jumped around a little bit. It's kind of like... Maybe Donald Trump. We won't go that far. <laughs> but everybody, everybody knew, and it was uh, amusing. But he was he was certainly yes. He, he was a great. Uh, uh, I mean, the, the diary really does reveal what's going on inside the cabinet, and as few other sources do. Um, boy, there are so many different aspects to to approach here. Let me ask about. Um, let me ask a, 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 a tough one here. The. Lincoln, you portray Lincoln favorably in this book, uh, especially in terms of his pragmatism. Uh, he learns how to handle things. He does what needs to be done. Uh, it doesn't follow a set uh, set of preconceived notions and, and changes over time. In historiographically speaking, T. Harry Williams wrote uh, a book that praises Lincoln also. And Williams was writing in the aftermath of World War II, when you had a great war president who, who led the United States to victory. The previous writers on Lincoln who praised him as a war leader were those of the 1920s, like Colin Ballard. Uh, right. They praise Lincoln because when they look at the last war, they see uh, World War One, where the, the, the military uh, took over from the political side and led... The, their nations to disaster. My question, and we'll, I'll ask it after the break so you can think about it, is do contemporary military and naval events and contemporary presidential leadership uh, affect your praise of Lincoln's pragmatism? We'll come back with that thought in just a few minutes when we talk again with Craig Simons on Civil War Talk Radio. Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Abraham Lincoln was originally, after the Civil War, portrayed as a relatively ineffectual military leader who left everything up to Grant. That changed over time. What about Lincoln as a naval leader? We'll talk more on that subject with Craig Simons when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. 
Ready to revolutionize your thinking? It's time to learn about the clarity, simplicity, and speed of systems thinking and how it can be applied to every aspect of your daily life. Each week, tune in to Steve Haynes Live and learn one systems thinking concept. You'll also learn three simple, clear, and integrated applications that you can use instantly. You can apply them to your life, job, family, organization, government, and or society. Steve Haynes Live broadcasts every Tuesday afternoon at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Join Steve, and together we will make a global difference. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Craig Simons, author of Lincoln and His Admirals. And when we left off the last segment, we were just talking about the idea of how contemporary events influence authors. Uh, Previous authors who praised Lincoln as a war leader uh, may have had in mind the the wars of their generation. And, Craig, my question for you is, do you think in, in praising Lincoln's pragmatism, is there... Uh, a, a, a veiled criticism of more ideological leadership? Well, I think there is a, it's certainly implied. It is absolutely true and has always been true that every generation writes its own history. That That is sometimes criticized as being a bad thing. I mean, history, after all, is a series of facts, isn't it? But what history uh-huh. means to us can change from generation to generation and from era to era. And, and what Lincoln means to a particular generation is obviously going to be refracted through the experience of that generation. So, so yes, I think it's true that uh, what happened in evaluating Lincoln as a war leader is if you perceive that micromanaging, and that's almost always used as a pejorative term, that micromanaging your military leaders in the field is a bad thing. As, for example, Lyndon Johnson is said to have done during Vietnam, at one point getting down so far into the weeds that he was picking out bombing targets for the pilots. Hit this one, not that one. That's not really the job of the head of state. So he was absolving himself in a way, avoiding the harder political problems of the war by involving himself in the tactical problems of the war. And those who criticize Lincoln and his leadership often complain that he did become something of a micromanager. He obviously changed generals with some frequency. Uh, he did that less with his admirals, but, but he did involve himself with his admirals. Uh, on the other hand, it's also possible to say, no, no, this was not micromanagement. This was necessary in view of the fact that he had generals who were either had private agendas of their own, as, for example, McClellan may have had, or had an ideological bent like Fremont or David Hunter, who wanted to advance the cause of emancipation sooner than Lincoln realized the public was willing to accept it and, and necessarily had to step in uh, to make some move. So whether Lincoln is a, uh, a pragmatist in terms of simply being realistic or uh, a micromanager, I think that depends on your most recent experience to a certain extent. But I, the most important thing is to evaluate Lincoln in his own context, Mm-hmm. And, and that was an entirely unprecedented set of circumstances. And just as he had to make it up as he went along with the Navy, he pretty much had to make up as he went along his relationships, his developing relationships with his generals. I, I don't disagree with T. Harry Williams in almost all of his uh, conclusions about Lincoln and his relationships with his generals. I just simply took a different 
uh, subject matter and address some of the same questions in Lincoln's relationship with his admirals. One of the things I thought was interesting was how you draw some analogies between those generals and admirals that uh, uh, when you're describing, for example, uh, Admiral DuPont, uh, right. uh, here's an admiral who is given lots of resources and has a great reputation and a great deal is expected of him. But when put into the field, he calls for reinforcements. He's doesn't not ready to attack. Needs more. Needs this or that. There's always some reason. Um, and and uh, uh, you know everyone listening to the show is thinking, well, that's you know McClellan. Yeah. Uh, and so was Lincoln. I mean, the difficulty with Dupont is that if if we were examining Dupont uh, in a vacuum, uh, Dupont really was not particularly McClellan-esque. But those letters from DuPont saying, well, you know, Charleston is a tougher nut to crack than you think, and there are a lot more fortifications and guns, and I need more ironclads, and this really isn't... It sounded so much like McClellan, and Lincoln had just gone through that experience with Little Mac, that when when he would hear uh, these messages from DuPont, it was McClellan's voice that resonated in his ear. And I think that did not work to DuPont's advantage. Uh, what finally ended DuPont's uh, tenure of command was not the fact that Lincoln fired him. Lincoln did not fire him. Uh, DuPont resigned on the grounds that uh, Gideon Wells did, was not sufficiently proactive in defending DuPont after he was repulsed in the April 1863 attack on Charleston. And that, that so annoyed DuPont that he offered his resignation, and Gideon Wells accepted it, and Lincoln did not overturn it. So there are some differences, but there are enough similarities that the analogy between uh, McClellan as a, as a general and DuPont as an admiral uh, resonated with Lincoln as well as, as with others at the time. Let me try another one. Um, you compare uh, David Dixon Porter uh, to Joe Hooker. Uh, how are they similar? Well, uh, <laughs> Uh, I guess the easy answer to this is to say they were both liars, but that, that may get to a few phone calls from your listeners. Uh, each of them, I think, was, uh, was, was skilled in some way. Uh, but Porter, even more than Hooker, um, really tried to uh, tilt uh, the evaluation of his own uh, behavior in ways that reflected on him, favorably on him. Uh, he, he really was very self-interested. He was ambitious. He was eager. He was not to be trusted. Uh, his memoirs, by the way, and he wrote two sets of memoirs, uh, are absolutely untrustworthy. If you compare those memoirs with, uh, with the facts as you know them, you can see that uh, he's, he is just making it up and putting himself in, in very good position. So, so that was, uh, was Porter's problem. Uh, the timing is one of the things that brings the analogy together, because Lincoln was searching desperately for someone who could be aggressive, who could be enthusiastic without being uh, disastrous, as Burnside was. And, and he turned to Hooker, uh, believing that Hooker could whip that army into shape and restore morale. And he turned to David Dixon Porter because of all his admirals. Porter was the guy who would come into the White House and say, I know exactly what needs to be done, I know exactly how to do it, and I'm your man. And that was so refreshing after 16 months of McClellan. Well, it really can't be done, and if it is done, it has to be done my way. So uh, I think Lincoln gave each of them an opportunity to prove to him that they could do what they said they could do. 
And in Hooker's case, of course, we got Chancellorsville. But in David Dixon Porter's case, we got Vicksburg. And uh, maybe Porter, certainly Porter, deserves some of the credit for that. But then again, so does Grant. So uh, maybe uh, Grant kind of helped Porter out a little bit there. Now, you talk about untrustworthy memoirs. Uh, one of the stories, uh, one of my favorite Lincoln stories uh, is what is, is his involvement in the 1862 uh, Peninsula Campaign when he went down to visit McClellan and the Army. He went down to Fort Monroe to try to get things going. Right. And there is a... a it, it's clear that Lincoln... Uh, went out in a boat to see what was happening on the the other shore of the James River to see uh, uh, on the south side of Hampton Roads what the Confederates were up to and whether there was perhaps a place Union troops could land. Um, in one account, uh, Lincoln himself lands on the shore and is actually walking up and down the beach and, and uh, in personally invading Confederate territory. Uh, you write that, that you don't think that story really happened, that that's exaggerated. I do not think that happened. That comes from uh, one, of the, one of the great 19th century names, and there are a lot of them in the Civil War. Egbert Ludovicus Viel was the general who wrote that in a memoir several years after the war. Viel was on the tugboat uh, with Lincoln that went down to Hampton Roads, accompanied him. He had come from Savannah, the surrender of, of uh, forts outside Savannah, and was uh, briefing Lincoln on that story and therefore rode along with him on the boat. Uh, it is clear that Lincoln uh, deliberately tried to show his general and his admiral in Hampton Roads how they could cooperate. He didn't order it. He didn't say, look, I want you to do this and I want you to do that. What he did instead was say, gentlemen, I have a concept. I have an idea. I think we could take troops from Hampton, put them in these canal boats that we have. We could cross Hampton Roads, land here on this beach, move in behind Norfolk, and capture the city. Well, no, Mr. President, there are reasons why we can't do that and this and that, and the Merrimack might come out and they'll shoot at us and there's no good landing beach. And Lincoln said, well, thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate your input. Let me look into that, which is how it came about that he got on this tugboat with his Secretary of the Treasury, Salmon P. Chase, and 20 soldiers, not VL, and uh, went across uh, and, and looked for a landing beach. I mean, here he is essentially doing a recon uh, for an amphibious operation. Um, he did not, and no one else says he got out of the boat. I can't imagine that Chase would have, would have allowed that. When the Army did go ashore the next day, Chase went ashore with them. Lincoln did not. Mm-hmm. So that, too, is suggestive. And I just can't imagine the scenario that the Secretary of the Treasury would allow the President of the United States to to go alone unaccompanied on a, on a beach and walk up and down inviting who knows what. So, so I, I think Yale is exaggerating that part of it. But I think what's important about the story is that Lincoln then was able to go back on board the Minnesota, which was the flagship of the squadron, and say to the admiral and say to the general, well, gentlemen, you said there wasn't a good landing beach. I've found one, and let me show you where it is. And, and in a way, he kind of shamed them into accepting the notion that a combined operation, what today we would call a joint operation, of the Army and the Navy working together to put soldiers ashore and, and bring about the, the surrender and capitulation of Norfolk was possible. Let me show you how it can be done. And it was done. Norfolk surrendered without a shot. The Merrimack lost its base, and the Confederates had to blow it up. So there were serious consequences from Lincoln accepting the initiative, not 
not directing others to do things, but showing by example how it was possible to cooperate. And sometimes that's an element of leadership that uh, oh, it is, indeed. is just irreplaceable. You just have to go and show people, you know, follow me, not uh, uh, go. you guys go there. Do what I tell you, right. Right. Now, one of the things that this book does, Lincoln and his admirals, is it really does tell the whole story of the Lincoln presidency, that it goes chronologically from beginning to end. Right. Um, there are times, it seems to me, when when... There's really not a lot naval going on, but but you have to keep the story going. Well, that's, um, that's partly true. I, I, there are a couple of chapters, the one in particular perhaps about colonization. Uh, one would say, well, where's the Navy in this? And I, I, my explanation for that would be two things. One is that it came about in part because the Navy was on the coast when contrabands came and asked to be taken off the coast and created a political and logistical problem that Lincoln had to solve. And so the Navy created the problem for him, and one of the possibilities was overseas colonization, which would also be a responsibility of the Navy in terms of transportation and protection. So it was a naval issue, but it broadened out into this enormous political, even ideological question of what to do with the freed slaves when that moment came. And Lincoln's flirtation, very strong flirtation, with the whole idea of colonization was triggered in part by the Navy, and, of course, the Navy was supposedly going to be part of that solution as well. But, but I understand what you mean. To, to maintain the story of Lincoln's growth and development as a commander-in-chief, using the Navy as the particular prism to examine that, required me to, to move a little bit away from strictly naval questions. This is not an operational history. It's a, it's a history of Lincoln's growth and development as a leader shown through his relationship with his naval commanders. Well, and, and I think you you achieve that, and, and sometimes very cleverly. The the point about colonization, another point uh, that I had not considered before, is, is that the uh, when there was exploration of Central America, the possibility of setting up a, a, a freed slaves colony there. Uh, it, you pointed out it was not a coincidence that that also would have been a coaling station. Yeah, a coaling station uh, and a navy base, exactly. So, so it would have had a strategic naval uh, aspect as well. Right. Uh, one thing uh, listeners should know, I, I, a pet peeve of, of, of mine and I think of many Civil War readers, are books with uh, without enough maps to tell you what's going on. And uh, listeners, you should know that this book has some nice maps. You, you once edited a, an atlas of Civil War battlefields. Well, I, I did more than, than edit it. I, I wrote it, and I worked uh, with a, a man, wonderful man, now deceased, named Bill Clipson, who was a, an artist. These were not computer-generated. These are hand-drawn. They're absolutely works of art. And I would sketch out what I wanted to, to show in the maps, and he would render them, and they're absolutely beautiful. Um, and, and most of them are in a book called The Naval Institute Historical Atlas of the U.S. Navy that goes from the Revolutionary War up through the Second Gulf War. Um, and and it, it's still in print, by the way. I'll plug it as well. But a good chunk of them, about 20 or so of those, come from the Civil War, and I, those are the maps that I used uh, in this book as well. Well, they they really are beautiful maps, and they do add a lot to it. Um, Craig, as happens too soon each week, we are out of time, but I really want to thank you for being on the show, and it was short notice this week. I, I appreciate you uh, being able to be with us. Thank you, Jerry. It's always a lot of fun to talk with you. And listeners, you will not want to miss Lincoln and His Admirals by Craig L. Simons. And once again, listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.